It is nice to block the doorway. It is nice to go to jail. There are nicer ways to do it. But the nice ways always fail. It isn't nice. It isn't nice. You told us once. You told us twice. But if that is freedom's price, we don't mind. Good afternoon and warmest greetings, listeners local and far away. And welcome to Radio Mineral Hill. This is Oz Cohen speaking to you today from the corner of love and century in beautiful Mineral Hill, Texas. We are, of course, sheltered by the fine and comfortable hermitage of the Tracy Preston Communications Office. And last I looked across the street, the glowing lights of the friendly beacon, the welcoming sphere of the municipal mercantile, the time was 4.10 in the afternoon on Wednesday, April 3rd, 2059, here in the westernmost point in the central time zone, in the loving heart of greater Century County. And as ever should be the case, I am overseen today by our program's producer, my comrade and compatriot, our silent monitor and steady hand, Avi Primick. For those listening locally, we will have news breaks throughout the afternoon and into the evening, brought to you by the austere and respectable Julia Arenas, who frankly has more business being here than uh, most anybody in this building. And of course, with weather and sports together as ever they should be, the inimitable Casey Krieg will be joining us later on throughout the day with their updates. Uh, and again, that's for our local listeners. And speaking of our lo- local listeners, <clears throat> should you have a tuner, it is provably set to FM 99.2. And if you are one of our tuned in and turned on listeners, it's time to heave to trice up. Mill about smartly throughout the premises, making certain every radio insight is set to Century County's favorite station for music news, and local events, and in so doing, continue to do whatever you must to ensure this remains the case either in perpetuity or at least until FM 99.2 becomes America's favorite station for music news and local events as it pertains to Century County-related those things. Uh, But if you're not tuned in, uh, you're listening to us because today is our podcast day. We take a segment of one of our daily installations, give it a little edit, give it a little touch-up, and we put it out for public consumption for folks outside of Century County to get to know us a little here, become more familiar with the last 30-some-odd years of the International Breakthrough Research Consortium and their work here in Mineral Hill, Century County, writ large, the county seat of which is, of course, Virgil, Texas, just uh, a scant, I don't know, 15 minutes away, that sounds right, and hopefully, along the way, learn a little bit while having some fun with our uh, loose and low-key attitude around here, and if you are joining us for the first time, thank you very much. Uh, I'm grateful you decided to check us out. And of course, if you're a repeat listener, well, thank you too. It means a lot to us that some people seem to be liking what we're doing, picking up what we're putting down, and we're just going to keep at it and keep getting better at it. And naturally, if you think anyone you know would enjoy our little program, please tell your friends, your co-workers, your religious and community leaders, whoever you care to, about just what it is we do here. And speaking of what it is we do here, uh, what we're going to do here today 
is I would like to talk a little bit about what you might call the uh, the bread and butter, the founding facet of of not just Mineral Hill, but the IBRC in general. And that would be um, geoengineering. Avi, why, Avi's getting up. Avi is giving me the delay hand signal. Uh, I don't have monitor. What's going on? Um, we're having some technical issues, so I'm just going to buy time, and I'm going to talk for a little bit and enjoy this uh, this open air time. Casey, how's your day going? That's exciting. Got a good, good nod and a smile. Uh, Casey is not looped into my monitor either. Excellent. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell a story. Um, so on the outskirts of town, uh, Casey, you would know this, that like if you live in Mineral Hill, if you work in Mineral Hill, you probably... Um, you probably live in Mineral Hill proper. Like Mineral Hill is, uh, you know, pretty decent sized, you know, big, small town, you know, Virgil's quarter million people, Mineral Hill's a little more than a 10th of that. Um, but if you're, if you're me and you don't live in the city proper, you, uh, you probably live on the North side, uh, by the old Mesa ranch, which is just what it sounds like a ranch kind of a butts and old Mesa. And there's some old, uh, old farmhouses out there, old ranch styles, when I say old, I mean my house is like 80 years old. Like there's some old, there's some old grandpa ghosts in, the, it's not haunted. It's, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to inculcate that in anyone's mind. I don't live in a haunted house. Uh, I just live in a, a many times retrofitted old, old, old ranch style. And I, I have to uh, drive down through the country to, to get to Mineral Hill and to, you know, work here. And uh, one of the things that I drive by is one, I, I, I see one of the wind farms, but also I drive by a new site where we're installing a, uh, a new bioreactor. And if you're not up on, on algal fuel, um, what it is, it's a big series, rather, of big, clear, well, I don't want to say tanks, they're, just, they're more like tubes, right? Uh, you, you, maybe you've seen one, I don't know, but they're these, you know, big, usually diagonal, long tanks. Sometimes they're flat against the ground. The newer ones are, are diagonal, so they kind of like stick up. Have you ever seen like the old Cadillac ranch where the cars are jammed into the ground at an angle? It actually kind of looks like, that is the most redneck comparison I could have made. Yeah, Casey is super cringing at me. Um, I'm an old redneck. Uh, <laughs> but, um... Yeah, there are these big tubes that are full of this um, highly al algae and, and uh, uh, fertilizer-rich water where we grow algae. And uh, certain algaes, uh, naturally, without any human intervention, uh, produce, uh, you know, a, a carbon-rich, basically, petroleum product. And with a little geoengineering, a little tinkering, they can produce it more efficiently. They can produce more of it and be easier to process. And from that, we get fuel to the point that, you know, in the United States, we don't get any of our of our, you know, combustion fuels from traditional, you know, in-ground fossil fuel resources anymore because we don't need to. And also it's bad for the environment. And the way these things work, now there's there's different versions. There are some that are open air, which are just these big pools full of slowly circulating, just super, super gross, slimy water um, that you wouldn't want to get into. But there are these big pools that you circulate the algae through and you just grow it in there. And there are others that are these big tubes that you, um, you can uh, aerate them in different ways. Usually it's just like a big bubbler. You just send bubbles up through them. And they can either get their light just directly from the sun. Some of them have uh, basically big uh, LED rods just these big rods lined with LEDs that shine light throughout so that when you're aerating that also, you know, 
permeates with light and because it's circulating, all the algae is getting lots of light, both from the outside and from within. And it just gets super, super diesel about uh, making diesel. I didn't really plan that, that goof in advance. And what you do is you then uh, pump, once it's ready, you pump out this, this algae-rich fluid and you, um, there's a couple things you can do. One of the things you can do is you, you can um, do a slow centrifuge and just skim the top of it and you process that. Or you can process the whole thing where you filter out as much of the water as you can and then you basically, again, very, very basic overview. You know, don't, don't try to make your own on what you're about to hear from me. But you basically distill it the same way you would distill oil. You put it in a big still, you heat it up, you put it under a little pressure, and the lighter stuff goes to the top, the heavier stuff goes to the bottom, you filter out, you know, the materials, and after enough steps of that and of filtration, you get diesel fuel. And what's cool about it is that it is a, uh, one, a generally cleaner fuel, it has less bad stuff that has to be filtered out or have additives added to it to counteract it than, um, you know, the stuff you get out of the ground. And also, it's technically uh, very slightly carbon negative. Even if you turn around and you burn that fuel, well, the carbon in that fuel that you're burning, you got it out of the atmosphere, right? So you're, you're just burning atmospheric carbon. You're just putting it back, which, you know, you don't have to do. And that's actually what the, the bioreactor that's kind of on my way into town uh, is going to be. It is a closed system that is not designed to make fuel. It is entirely designed to take this algal runoff, uh, cook off the water, and then compress all the uh, the dried, carbon-rich, carboniferous algal material down into thick, um, you know, sludge. Basically, we're gonna uh, pump that into a, a deep mine, and it's just gonna live there. And we're just gonna leave it there, and it won't be in the atmosphere anymore. And now, mind you, one of those doesn't do a whole lot, but there are a ton of them, and more and more every year, dotted around the world. And we're you know pulling carbon dioxide directly out of the air and that is one of the kinds of geoengineering we're going to talk about today and what's something i want to stress with geoengineering and it's what i think is cool about it is it's not just a technology of the present that's that's making the world a safer healthier place to live in it is a technology of the future because geoengineering if you really stop and think about it is just terraforming except it's terraforming earth and it's it's kind of reverse terraforming because really we've you know, humans, through, through anthropogenic climate change, you know, we've been terraforming the planet. And to a certain degree, we still are. You know, we haven't, um, we haven't been serious about climate change that long. We've halted it. We've, we've kept it from getting worse. And, you know, in some places, through certain kinds of direct action, um, you know, we've kind of reversed some effects. But the global effects of it, we haven't reversed. And, and without more action, they're going to continue to get worse, for sure. Um, you know, if we don't, if we don't not just stop the rise of the planet's, you know, average temperature, but lower it back, lower it further, uh, take it back to what's supposed to be naturally, the ice caps are, you know, going to keep melting. Like, we're going to, things are going to get worse. They're not going to just stay where they are now. And, and, and I want to stop for a second because a lot of people have a, a misconception about that. And I want you to think about why. Let's say... Uh, Let's say you're in a big freezer, okay? And, um, you know, in this freezer, you, you maintain a, a, a temperature of, of, you know, just around freezing. And for a while, you, um, 
you've got this big ice block sitting on a big metal table. And for a while, you take a uh, hairdryer, blow dryer, and you heat up that table, get it all, get it all hot. And you're melting that ice block. Well, just turning off the, the heater or the, the blow dryer isn't enough. You've got to cool that table back down, too. And while it's cooling down naturally, that ice block is going to keep melting, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to reach equilibrium. It's going to reach a new, more melted equilibrium, even as the climate of the freezer slowly goes back to what it's supposed to be. So what you really need to do is you need to cool that, that freezer back down to what it's supposed to be at. Now, the problem is, is you're going to have this displacement of water from the already melted ice block, and that is... Uh, we're not going to cover that today, but I will say that's a that's a doozer of a problem. The already caused damage of climate change is not as easily reversed as other stuff. Um, it's it's a lot easier to prevent it from getting worse than it is to repair it from where it's already gotten worse. Um, you know, Greenland ice shelf loss is one of those things that the, the buildup of ice on that took place over thousands and thousands and thousands of years because it's a very dry climate. And, and it's far true in Antarctica. It's worth remembering that, you know, the Antarctic is, is a desert. It's an arid climate. It's just over a huge span of time that built up into a giant glacier. Well, just getting the planet cold again isn't going to build that glacier back up. And, um, you know, what we're going to do about that is, is still a pretty open-ended question. But that's a bummer. That's, that's all kind of, you know, we, we don't want, we don't want to get too much into a bummer here and, and not like we're, we're totally doomed or anything. You know, we're going to be okay. I'm going to get a little sip of my beverage here. Mmm. Yum. You know, we're not, uh, we're not doomed. I want to stress that. And I know saying, you know, Nothing makes it sound like we're doomed quite like saying we're not doomed, uh, but we're really not. You know, we, we, we through, through the same ingenuity, ingenuity that endangered us, we can save ourselves and the planet. And, and that's what we're doing. We're just working on it. So about that, uh, about that algal bioreactor, right? Um, I, I, being the joint projects director, you know, I kind of, uh, I, it's not that I have my finger in every pie cause there's a lot of stuff that happens that I just, you know, I don't have a lot to do with. Um, but I'm going down there to just kind of take a peek, see how things are going with construction. And, uh, there's a group of folks there who I, I didn't bother to stop, stop to talk to them cause I just could not be bothered. Um, but real, uh, <laughs> um, Real tinfoil hat types, you know. Uh, there, there are some there who, you know, they're the climate change was never happening. Uh, nothing the IBRC does is real. Even like the, um, there's a real weird uh, internet conspiracy. I guess all of them are internet conspiracies, but <laughs> whatever. Um, that basically goes like the algal fuel industry is totally bunk. And what it actually is, is it's manufactured by uh, the old oil corporations, including some of which are that are out of business, uh, to sell the exact same product, but like s made to look different, um, at a higher price. The, like that's their con is that oh no, it's actually all the same stuff, and then just you know climate change is never real. Nothing we've ever we've done here has ever been real. These algal reactors do nothing. Um, there's another one that's this to me like. <sighs> 
I don't want to say it's more um, scientifically accurate because it's not. It's not at all. Um, but they'll say, you know, climate change was never real, which obviously that's extremely wrong. But then they'll say these um, these these geoengineering things that we're doing are in fact uh, going to cool the Earth unnaturally. It's it's reverse global warming. And that's going to be damaging, and it's part of some grand conspiracy. And, and the thing that's like, I, I'm not going to get too much into it because it's a little bit beyond the scope of this show. And, you know, Avi and I are big quarantine types. Yeah, Avi's giving me the stink eye right now, actually. Um, but there are some people there who, you know, they're, they're a little crypto about the things they think and the things they're trying to kind of you know, get into people's heads. Um, and among like the people who are just off on some really dumb stuff, you've got people there who are like, well, okay, th these scientists, these globalist scientists are uh, trying to cool the planet. And th the reason why is that the places that'll be most affected by a cooled earth will be in the Northern hemisphere. And you know, you know what kind of people live, live there a lot? Well, white people. And and therefore, it's part of a, an ongoing racial thing that's totally been happening for over a century, and that um, it's it's really stupid. Um, and the thing is, is like there have always been. I mean, dating back forever, back to the anti-vaccination movement, to the uh, people who like some of the people who opposed like germ theory back in the day. Um, there have always been these people who have like. A, a desire to use, to either use the current conception of science, see phrenology, or use the idea that science is wrong and is leading people astray as a way to like kind of slip in their incredibly horrifying, usually um, massively bigoted and terrible views on things. And, and not necessarily even to convince people of the like, air quotes, science part of it, but to insert the idea of like, oh, actually, it's about this much broader thing. And while you're while you're learning about that, why don't you check out my my videos and my writings about all this other stuff and how this is real? And, it, and of course, all of it's just, you know, a bunch of bunk because, you know, it is. And, and we're not going to go into any further detail than that. And again, Avi is just glaring at me. But uh, it's it's always been a thing. It'll always be a thing. And the way to combat it is, you know, where you where you can quarantine it, just do that. And where you feel like you have to confront it, you know, call it what it is. It's revolting, but also it's incredibly dumb. It's stupid, and it's it's providing easy answers to people who feel like they need them. And that the way to help those people is to do things like this: outreach. That was really positive. That ended on a positive note. Yeah. One one of the two people in the in the production booth are smiling at me. I'll let you guess which one. Um, it's Casey. Casey is the one smiling at me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, how how are we doing before we get to the station identifier? Okay, so we're gonna do this then. Uh, we've talked about one where I live, which is very exciting. I know. Uh, we've talked about how um, you know bioreactors for algal fuels are. Carbon, actually, yeah, this is really useful. We talked about how they're, they're carbon neutral, technically carbon negative, but in most cases, functionally carbon neutral, sometimes carbon positive, but it doesn't matter. Um, you know, 
it's it's all fudge. Uh, and we've also talked about uh, how you can use them for carbon sequestration. You take that carbon, you put it away. Now, before we get into a, a deeper conversation about the broader subject of geoengineering as a thing, and before we got to pause to do station identifier, um, I want to take a hot second to talk with you about uh, kind of a, a, an important concept in anthropogenic climate change and, and climate in general. Um, we're not going to do like a full-blown episode right now on, on climate change. We're probably going to have to do a climate change episode at some point, just like a broad, you know, deeper dive than what you maybe half remember from school kind of thing. Um, I think also, just based on this last bit, we're probably going to do a biofuel episode at some point too. That seems like a cool thing to do. But right now, I uh, want to talk, want to drill down on the concept of the carbon cycle and carbon flux. So the carbon cycle is something you probably know about. It's maybe something you heard about in school. Um, in its simplest form, and in the way that if you just saw like a thing when you were in first year in high school, is what you saw. It is the, the life cycle of carbon, the biological carbon life cycle. There's carbon in the soil, and then plants, well, there's carbon in the soil, there's carbon in the atmosphere, and that's turned into plant matter. Then it moves up the food chain with animals, or it decays, or, or whatever, and it moves all through the food chain through processes of consumption, uh, uh, digestion, decay, respiration, all of that, and along the way with carbon being either released back into the atmosphere and soil, or moving elsewhere into the chain, but eventually being, at some point, you know, released back into the atmosphere and soil. Um, the thing about that is that that is a it, it, like to call that a cycle is a little um, it's a little hinky because it's very much a web. Like you can move up, you can move down, you can move laterally. It's it's, it's complicated. Um, this is also where when people talk about uh, uh, cows, for instance, uh, causing um, you know climate change, anthropogenic climate change, because we've bred so many cows. And they are an animal that produces a lot of uh, gaseous wastes, let's say. The, the reason why is that they can take the carbon that's in, that's in plants, that's in the stuff they eat, that hay, that grass, whatever it is the cows like to eat, uh, corn, if we're, we're you know, making nasty cows. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of corn-fed cows anymore. I don't think that's a thing that's uh, like, I don't think, yeah, I don't know. Um, the point being, they take a lot of that carbon, and a lot of it comes out the the back end, the business, well, the business side, but the unpleasant side of the cow, not as a solid material, but as a gaseous material that is released directly into the atmosphere. And uh, we're going to talk about atmospheric gases in a little bit, but just hang on to that in your head. Um, now, that carbon that's moving around, the measure of that carbon, and again, this is a loose usage of the term because we don't have a, we're not going to spend four hours on this episode, um, is carbon flux. The carbon cycle is how carbon moves around, and the carbon that moves through that cycle is measured by carbon flux. Just keep that, keep that in your noggin. It's also worth remembering that there are other parts of the carbon cycle. There is obviously, uh, because, you know, carbon, it's in dirt, it's in rocks, it's in the air, it's, it's in, you know, volcanoes, which are kind of made out of rocks, but you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> um, there are geologic parts of the carbon cycle. So uh, limestone, for instance, is formed primarily from calcium carbonate, 
which comes from coral reefs or reefs. Yeah, not reefs. I don't know why I was going to say reefs in shallow, warm water and uh, less commonly, but it can happen. Uh, it'll precipitate directly out of uh, like warm, um, highly acidic water or rather highly, um, I guess, I guess that'd be basic water. So like if you've ever been to a, a geyser, for instance, like a Yellowstone um, and you see like this white kind of crusty ring, this film almost of rock, that's limestone. That's the same stuff that the uh, the white cliffs of Dover are made out of, except that's made with just non-biological limestone whereas like the white cliffs of dover are made out of just countless teeny tiny little shells um and some of which are are microscopic organisms like they're all they're not just like you know oysters and stuff um which is pretty cool i would say now those kinds of rocks are of course part of the carbon cycle uh they erode just from wind and water but also when the the ocean like let's say you're a big chunk of limestone sitting in the ocean and that water gets warmer making uh, uh chemical processes easier to happen more there's you know there's more available energy for for those chemical processes to occur um and if the ph of the ocean changes in such a way that it gets more acidic that limestone that that uh calcium carbonate breaks down and makes the ocean more basic brings the ph back down in in the in a way the the reefs and again this is the thing that climate change has done it's why uh you know coral bleaching and uh death is is kind of a problem that uh that release of that carbon is the exact same thing that happens when you uh take a a calcium carbonate tablet you know if you got the bubble guts you put that in some water and you drink it and it makes you feel better cuz it's just it's just balancing out that pH uh, the problem with that, of course, is that you suddenly have this water that has a lot more carbon dioxide in it, because that's that's one of the byproducts of that process. And when the water churns around and settles out, that, that carbon dioxide whoop, comes bubbling up out of the ocean and is in the atmosphere. Uh, in the longer term, there is also, of course, the creation of carbon sinks, long-term carbon sinks, like coal, oil, and natural gas. And once these deep traps form, uh, particularly, you know, coal and oil, that carbon is permanently removed from the carbon cycle, unless something really weird like uh, humans with drilling equipment happens. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's relevant to climate change somehow. <laughs> uh, th I will say that like natural gas deposits, like for instance, um, in, uh, in permafrost, such as, you know, there's a whole lot of that. <laughs> Uh, but but one of the things that really accelerated climate change um, and that's something that we have to combat against a lot is that in, um, you know, in a lot of permafrost, there are these methane traps. And these are, are these are not like deep earth geologic, you know, um, deep strata, you know, in the layers of rocks that form the crust of the earth. Um, these are like soil level methane traps. But technically, that's that's natural gas. And that is just formed from decayed plant matter that was just buried in frozen earth and when that frozen earth decayed that methane basically just burst out of the ground and erupted into the atmosphere um there are also uh deep um uh what is it called there's also there are also uh methane uh kind of ice deposits at the bottom of the ocean places and in some of them where the sea floor the seabed has gotten warm enough those methane ice deposits release and poof, erupt in, in giant clouds to the surface, which also not great. Um, and those are those are examples of of natural gas deposits that are more um, environmentally available that don't require 
in 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 a in a way in a sense they don't require human intervention to be releases now released rather practically technically uh they would not have been released but for our action but you know that's splitting hairs no it's not it's 100 our fault um just boy this is a really positive episode so far um and and this is a fun fact this is a cool one in the extreme long term the super long term not just not just like millions of years but many millions of years billions of years um active geology is what maintains the atmosphere and that's what maintains the carbon cycle part of why mars has such a thin atmosphere is because of its negligible geologic activity it's not churning the ground there and releasing traps of of carbon rich molecules into the atmosphere and and also like the lack of a dynamo that's creating a magnetosphere and the sun is you know blowing off the atmosphere there's there's also that but um one of the reasons why though mars's atmosphere is so thin is that the uh, the actual rocks on the surface of Mars, and, and this happens on Earth too, technically, but, you know, we have a, an active planet. Through a process called weathering, rock itself can suck stuff out of the atmosphere, and a lot of which can be carbon-rich compounds. Um, that one is, I will say, for our purposes, not a significant contributor to uh, climate-driving processes. They don't really need to worry about that one too terribly much. So yeah, we're going to do our station identifier real quick, and we're going to come right back, and we're going to pick up with a quick overview of different kinds of geoengineering. This might be a two-parter, I think. This one's going to run long. Um, at any rate, yeah, uh, there's either going to be, if you're listening locally, station identifier, and if you're listening on the podcast, there's going to be something here. We'll find out. Hey everybody, it's me, Oz Cohen, breaking the fourth wall here, kind of stepping out of character. Uh, we got some production notes from the desk of Ava Cantor, producer of Radio Mineral Hill, real-life producer of, of Radio Mineral Hill. First and foremost, we are back from our unplanned hiatus. The show is, is back on its weekly schedule. Big apology for that. The short version is that a bunch of life stuff happened back-to-back. And it's a bummer, and this kind of, you know, passion project thing got put on the back burner. It blows. The plan going forward is for Radio Mineral Hill to go on the week-to-week schedule that was originally planned. Uh, there might be occasional stuff slipped into the upload stream here and there, like this episode is probably going to have kind of an addendum that comes up afterward, because otherwise it's going to run long. Uh, like, that's an example of one. But broadly... Yeah, we're going to maintain the schedule. The actual upload day may be a little fluid for a while as we kind of settle into a workflow and also just like pick a day that's good. It's always worth remembering that Radio Mineral Hill is produced by a single person, Ava Cantor, and presented by a character created by that person. Hi, that's me. You can read into that whatever you want. It's it's really obvious. <laughs> that's dumb. This show is is dumb. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the second thing is, uh, not great because we didn't plan on, on making this announcement, even if Radio Mineral Hill had been maintaining its week to week update schedule. Uh, you may have seen Patreon's new business model. It's really bad. If you didn't basically capitalism happened and it sucks. Uh, so we have to launch a Patreon to get grandfathered into the old business model as, you know, as long as that's going to exist. Uh, the first thing we want to note about that is that we're not going to hawk it really aggressively. We're not going to, you know, this thing's brand new. We're not going to, not going to do that. It is, it is early to the point of being silly to aggressively be like, donate to our Patreon. Like, uh, you know, no, we're going to, we're going to say, Hey, it's there, but that's about it. 
don't feel like you absolutely have to contribute if you want to, if you trust us that much this early. That's amazing. That's incredible. We will find a way to reward you. The stuff that's up there now, whatever it is, is preliminary. It's up there to be up there to get grandfathered into the system. But while we're talking about, you know, Patreon type stuff, uh, we do want to take a take a hot second to talk about just monetization going forward. The philosophy we want to take into it is that anything that anyone puts into Radio Mineral Hill in terms of like, you know, capital is is going to like give something new and different it's not going to unlock more show anything that we make that we think oh everyone would enjoy this is just going to go up on the feed you know certain kinds of it's way too early to talk about what could what could be up there whatever but like basically we're not going to do bonus episodes we're not going to probably never going to do early releases that even seems kind of hinky and and no judgment about anybody who does that that's if if that works for them that's fine not judging that one so yeah that's just what we're feeling like so yeah we're gonna launch patreon it's gonna be really low-key don't even worry about it if you want to donate that's amazing you want to do the ko-fi thing that's incredible too but like just don't sweat it uh additionally we're not going to be abusive with it even when it becomes a thing third thing is this is the first episode to really lean on the structure of radio mineral hill of this like very breezy top-down conversational thing to the point that like the full episode can't really fit very neatly into a single episode so we're going to have a little uh addendum a little footnote that's going to come up and you know we would appreciate we would love feedback on that if you think like hey your tone is good you know we like this very conversational very hangout style very in-world you know just chill talk radio vibe that's great let us know um if you don't like it you have feedback. We also want to know that the best way to get in touch with anything involving Radio Mineral Hill is most obviously um, on Twitter at Radio Mineral Hill. Um, that Twitter, however, is mostly used for just show updates. If you want to really like get in, get into that vein of the production pipeline, uh, you can find Ava Cantor's Twitter at well at at. Uh, po River Jam Band. That's P O River Jam Band. And, um, you know, be cool, be chill, take that Mineral Hill spirit and stride of, you know, we're all working together. But, uh, yeah, that was, um, you know, it's all we got. If, if, thank you. If you're a repeat listener, thank you so much. We're sorry for the delay. If you're a new listener, here's the thing. This whole thing you just heard, don't even worry about it. There was never a delay. Also, there's some kind of glitch on the, on the uploader. That's like showing this big gap. And that that's weird. That doesn't make sense. That seems like a bug. That's probably on your end. So yeah, here comes the rest of the episode. Thank you for your time. And, uh, yeah. Oh, one more thing. OC like discussions of the structure of the show aren't going to happen too often. That's not something we want to do too much of. I think at one point, you know, there's going to be like special exceptions to that, but we're not going to have every episode be like time to part the kimono. Like, no, we're not going to do that. So yeah, now here's the rest of the episode. And we're back. Thank you for, for rejoining us. I, I don't think that break was long enough that we were going to lose people in the middle of it. Who knows? But uh, thank you regardless for still being here. Uh, so we've talked about the the carbon cycle, how it impacts climate. Hopefully you can uh, you're you're on board with us that you know this is a thing that we've impacted previously and logically it makes sense that it's a thing we can continue to impact, but hopefully in a positive way. And uh, an idea before we get going further in that that I wanna I wanna re-cement is that uh, 
geoengineering is technically something that we've been doing functionally since human civilization really got going. But on the level that we're talking about human industrialization, since basically the discovery of combustion is something we've been doing. If you think about it, like climate change itself, anthropogenic climate change is geoengineering. It's just bad. Um, the kind of geoengineering we're going to talk about today is the good kind. It's the kind to undo the kind of geoengineering that we've been doing. And, and, you know, logically, if we can do a bad kind of geoengineering, it kind of tracks that we should be able to do a good kind of geoengineering. And, uh, that, that kind of logical leap is a, is a problem. It's, it's a, um, it was a, a barrier that uh, early discussions of the subject really faced early on is that, you know, back in the, the 2000s and the 2010s, um, you know, we had already cra- crossed the point of no return. We'd already gone past this point where the solution to climate change was to just stop making things worse. Because, again, it's that thing of, you know, it's it's we've already pushed the earth. We, we were by then we had already pushed the earth past a natural point. We'd already made things bad and things were going to keep getting worse just to settle at equilibrium. The, the, the climate, the, the weather hadn't caught up to the climate yet, basically. And to keep that from happening, we were going to have to pull it back. But we had people saying things like, Oh, you just want to do some science fiction stuff. Oh, this is a plot, some crazy movie. And no, it's all, you know, for the most part, what we're going to talk about here, realistic stuff. Um, and, and kind of getting people over that hump was a was actually a pretty big, you know, it was a pretty big barrier. It was it was indeed a bit of a hump. Um, now, it is it is unfortunate that you know one of the things that 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 kind of got people over that that barrier wasn't just going oh well actually it is pretty realistic. It was things getting worse. It was appreciating that you know climate change isn't gonna get better. It's not just going to go away. We got to do something. And it was seeing, you know, worsening wildfires. It was seeing worsening hurricanes. It was seeing, you know, the planet become a much more hostile place to just live in on it that made people go, okay, I I guess we got to try something. And what's what's kind of wild to me, and this is, um, you know, this kind of reflects my background because I'm, you know, I, I... this is, you know, sidebar, this kind of goes in the territory of like earlier I was talking about, you know, where in the county I live. But, you know, I'm I'm not a, a huge research scientist. I'm an administrator. My background is more in economics and administration, blah, 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 whatever. But uh, I, I, I have a big fondness for like the history of science and like discussing the impact that, you know, human industry is, is has on like climate. Like the idea of global warming dates back into the 1800s. Right. It's not not remotely a new concept. It wasn't a new concept in the the mid 20th century right um and even like the idea of geoengineering it was it was discussed for the first time in a in a serious way in 1965 there was a report commissioned by uh lyndon baines johnson who um being being a history nerd i'm going to say kind of a a uh, controversial figure in american history but in terms of some of his environmental stuff not the worst um <laughs> you know his history is fun like that uh but in terms of this one report there was a report called restoring the quality of our environment and and i want to note that name restoring the quality of our environment okay 
uh, one, they knew there was a problem. They were talking about the harmful effects of fossil fuels on the environment in terms of not just we're pumping sulfates into the atmosphere and that's bad. They were also saying like, hey, global warming, climate change, that's that's a problem. That's not good. Um, and, they, and they were talking about, you know, if we can't if because one of their things was like, hey, we're in the middle because this was this was the middle of the 20th century. They were like, we're in the middle of this Cold War thing, There's stuff going on. I'm 90 percent sure the Vietnam War was still going on. Yeah, no, the Vietnam War was definitely still going on. So I, you know, I read books. <laughs> but yeah, no, the Vietnam War was still going on. So they couldn't just stop using fossil fuels. They weren't going to get the world off of that. But what they were, what they could do, and again, this is the 1960s, 1965, what they could do was increase the reflectivity of the planet to have less sunlight heating up the earth. 1965, almost a century ago. Um, yeah, like four years before we landed on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> So so when people, you know, in the 2000s and the 2010s were saying, oh, this was some crazy science fiction thing. No, Pe people have been talking about it for half a century. And if and if you do want to say, oh, it's a crazy science fiction thing, science fiction at that point had been talking about it for 100 years. By now, it's it's a century and a half old as a concept. Like, it's an old idea. Um, and again, it is worth noting that what we've been doing to the environment through industrialization is geoengineering. We've been adding, you know, molecules to the atmosphere that change how the climate works. Logically, just, you know, because of how thermodynamics and physics and just, you know, reasonably, it makes sense that we should be able to do other things to the atmosphere to reverse that effect, either by adding different things to the atmosphere or... I would say, ideally, removing those things that we added from the atmosphere. Um, now, some of you folks out there who are fans of the second law of thermodynamics might go, well, that's a little harder. And you're right. But it's still not impossible. Um, that's an entropy joke. It's not very good. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so... Yeah, that's kind of our, our lead into talking about um, geoengineering. And when it comes to geoengineering, uh, and I already already tipped, tipped the cards a little bit, but when it comes to geoengineering, there are two, uh, two main species, two main, I, I wouldn't even say species, two main uh, genuses, orders, varieties of geoengineering. The, the first one that we're going to talk about is carbon dioxide removal. That's that's where there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we want to get rid of it. It's that simple. Um, it's also commonly called carbon sequestration. Carbon dioxide removal is kind of a, a less, like it's a very direct way to refer to it. Carbon sequestration is a little fancier, a little more accurate. Um, I, I like carbon sequestration. Sequestration is a fun word. The other one is solar radiation management. And there's a couple ways to do that. We're going to talk about that one. That'll be the second one to talk about because it's a little more. It's it's a lot simpler in concept, but it's a lot harder in practice. Uh, and we're going to get into why. But there is another older, more more primitive, one might say, form of geoengineering. Uh, one that we have been doing uh, really 
as as long as as civilization itself has existed that predates industrialization. Because uh, when I say we've been doing geoengineering since industrialization, I was I was technically wrong. We've been doing it longer, and uh, and it works. We know it works because you know one, if you think about it, um, you know we talked about the carbon cycle a bit ago, right? And that's not the only driver of climate because I mentioned that you know water vapor is a big driver of, of, of climate and, uh, and not just in terms of being an insulating gas. It's also, if you have a lot of clouds in the atmosphere, uh, it, clouds are kind of complex because if you have light, fluffy, high altitude clouds, they're very white and they reflect a lot of sunlight. Whereas darker, heavier, you know, those kinds of clouds tend to absorb sunlight because they're darker. And also because they're thicker, they, they're more insulating. It's very complex. You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky, but, um, you know, the, affecting the water cycle is a way to, um, you know, affect the climate in, in a region. And humans have been doing that since basically the dawn of history. That's called irrigation. Uh, you know, when you build a dam or you build a, uh, I guess a, uh, what's it? Not a levee. Um, yeah, a levee, like the kind where, you know, you, you dam the water, but then you let the river run on, you make like a smaller river or you build channels to move water into other places or let's say you do agriculture, you do uh, agriculture and you uh, take a bunch of plants and you put them in one place. And one, in a, in a very obvious way, uh, when you grow a lot of plants, well, those plants are made out of carbon. I mean, they're made out of a lot of things, but one of the things they're made out of is carbon. And that carbon used to be in the atmosphere. I mean, some of it used to be in the soil, but a lot of it used to be in the atmosphere. They're sucking, they're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere to make more plant so they're a carbon sink in that way but also those plants because they're in the ground they're changing the water cycle they're changing the local weather and although weather and climate are different things they are interconnected and if you change the weather on a large scale you change those long-term weather plant patterns you are changing the climate and uh you can see that it, one of my favorite examples, because I'm from, um, I personally am from Texas and on one side of my family, um, you know, I'm from overseas, but my grandfather, my great grandfather, my, my, that part of my family grew up in a little place called Kansas, which a long, long time ago, back in the early 1900s had a, an ecological and economic, a human disaster. Speaking of combustion engines, there's one outside. <laughs> But there was an there was an ecological disaster early in the 1900s called the Dust Bowl, and we're not going to go through the whole history of the Dust Bowl because this episode's already running long. But uh, it, which I say, even though I'm just totally goofing and acting very silly this episode, but um, basically, the Dust Bowl was caused by a variety of factors. One of which was the people who were living the the Americans living in the the Great Plains at the time were not managing the land well. The agriculture going on um, just just sucked, just sucked the life out of the land um, and and left the topsoil uh, prone to to drying out in, in windy drought conditions. And I'll tell you, having spent a decent amount of my childhood around Oklahoma and Kansas, windy drought conditions uh, will happen. That's a that's a thing that place can and will do. And um that's what happened in, in during the Dust Bowl is that a 
combination of, of irresponsible human activity and a change in, in climactic patterns happened and a, a disaster unfolded and, and um, basically a, a period of intense desertification broke out across the plains. Huge walls of, of dust spread across the continent. Um, people lost livelihoods, homes, you know, entire communities were just abandoned because you couldn't grow food there. Um, never, never mind the, the loss of jobs and capital. Like, people were starving because you just couldn't grow food. There was a famine. Um, and, and of course, the, the direct death caused by just all that dust in the air. You know, you can't, can't breathe dust. Uh, your lungs don't like that. And um, it's bad. And uh, yeah, it was it was a, it was a terrible time. And one of the responses to it was, in addition to just better land management practices, was a um, a government program called the Great Plains Shelter Belt, which was nothing more than just planting a ton of trees, uh, a lot of windbreaks, in strategic places from. Um, all the way from from certain parts of Texas up through Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota, just in this corridor up through Central, you know, America. Not Central America, the you know, part of the America, Central America, the Central United States of America, the Plains. <laughs> and uh, it, it is a a massive stretch, and. Um, and it worked. It changed the weather in those region, regions. The, um, the amount of er soil erosion dropped dramatically. The uh, amount of rain there increased. It, it was incredibly effective. It was fantastically effective. And it indeed changed the climate of the plains. That's geoengineering. And one of the things that trees do, uh, if you're worried about carbon, is they hold on to it. And, and one of the things that we as a species have done and, and did a lot throughout the, the uh, really last 400 years is cut down a ton of trees. And when you have places, um, and obviously there's more places than just this, but when you have places like South America and Africa and, and certain places in South Asia, like uh, Indonesia is a really good example where you have these massive areas of forestation that we've, that, you know, through a demand for, for wood and cheap labor, um, you know, had them go in and, and cut down massive areas of fast growing forest and jungle for wood, um, you're releasing tremendous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. You're turning carbon sinks into sources of atmospheric carbon. And, um, the, the kind of the upshot of that is, and I say upshot, you know, air quotes is, you know, when we when we cut down those we, during that period of deforestation, the effect that had on the environment was on the global environment, on the on the global carbon output was was disastrous, was catastrophic. However, um, as as labor intensive as that kind of greenif greenification reforestation is, um, it is very self sustaining. Once you you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like the desertification. Maybe you've heard uh, how the the Sahara grows and it grows through geologic forces it's a massive area of desert and just through geologic forces it 
it grows, it expands, it reaches beyond its borders. And a sufficiently large area of forest or jungle, just because of how you know the force ecological forces work, unless the climate's working against it, because if it's too hot or it's too dry or whatever, um, will grow on its own. And the thing about um, you know, again, unless unless the climate's really working against it, the the thing about a large forested area is that it produces its own um, local weather and climatic patterns, and uh, it it produces patterns that promote further growth. So if you go in there and you do the la- the labor to encourage that reforestation, it'll it'll do it on its own. And we've gone into places, um, you know, like Brazil. Uh, like a lot of Africa, like Indonesia, and we've promoted that reforestation. And in the last, you know, 20 or so years, it's really taken hold and it's really starting to take off. And the nice thing about the kind of trees that grow there is that they grow really pretty fast. You know, if you've ever been out to California, like to the redwood forest out there, redwoods are a pretty casual tree. They 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 like to grow real slow. Uh, whereas, you know, things like teak, man, that, that thing just goes crazy. You know, bamboo, that, that stuff just woof, takes off. So if you, if you're, if you're cutting down, you know, forests and jungles of trees that like to grow fast, not only are you, you releasing massive carbon sinks, you're also destroying carbon sinks that are your best carbon sinks. So that's, you know, bad. And again, I will note that is that is a form of geoengineering that is incredibly old. It's basically just agriculture. Like that's all it is. It's just growing trees and it's something that we as a species as a as a global civilization have been doing for our entire history as a civilization because agriculture is is, you know, one of our earlier inventions. Now, related to that, if you want to talk about growing stuff, uh, we can also talk about not just growing stuff on the land, but growing stuff in the ocean. And in this case, we're going to talk about ocean fertilization, which is a, a, a broad area of geoengineering. Uh, it originally got its start specifically as iron fertilization, um, which is the, the original form of this geoengineering uh, kind of got its its research kicked off, its practical research kicked off in the 1990s. It's one of the newer uh, forms of geoengineering, like, you know, greenification, uh, reforestation. That's, that's old stuff. Again, old as agriculture, if you want to be technical about it. Um, everything else is, is definitely newer. Um, but... Ocean fertilization, iron fertilization, iron seeding, whatever you want to call it, is relatively new, but it's also very simple and very straightforward. The oceans are big. I know. Shocker. Uh, But in the oceans... (laughs) That's a very scientific way to put that. Uh, But in the oceans are a lot of teeny tiny little plants called phytoplankton. They're just little little guys, little plants. And... um, these, these phytoplankton require nutrients to grow, uh, among them being iron. So what we can do is we can go to iron-poor regions of the ocean and give them that iron that they want. And we can, you know, in various compounds and various isotopes, you know, forms, uh, forms of iron. And they just, they love it. They go nuts, which has a couple benefits. One, you grow more phytoplankton, and that pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere sequestering it in the ocean which um 
there was there was some concern like, oh, that's going to change the ocean pH early on. There was a worry about that. But the way that it compounds, that it forms like one, it's turning into plankton. It's not just turning into loose, you know, free floating uh, carbon or carbon dioxide in solution in the ocean means that the oceanic pH doesn't change, which is important. And uh, two, there are other uh, chemical processes that happen because you have this, you know, further life happening in the ocean that keeps that from happening. It's a little more complex than just you have more plankton, not just like free floating carbon dioxide. But long story short, the ocean's pH doesn't change. Um, So you have carbon dioxide pulled out of the ocean, which is excellent. Um, and, And two... You have a a kickstarting effect on on not always local wildlife like it, it it doesn't always have an immediate effect on the local ecology, um, but usually these these less nutrient rich areas of the ocean are already pretty dead. But when this plankton spreads out, uh, the surrounding area becomes much more life alive and vibrant, and that life and vibrance tends to feed back into this this kind of basically ocean desert uh these this desolate region and uh three the formation of these algal blooms produces uh through the the waste material of this phytoplankton you don't think of like little tiny you know small organisms producing a lot of waste but you know they every every everybody poops um is a high-end scientific document that i'm a fan of referencing (laughs) Anyway, uh, they produce a waste material that goes into the atmosphere that promotes uh, the formation of clouds. And these clouds actually tend to be uh, fairly light, bright clouds, which produces a, you know, high reflectivity that, you know, bounces sunlight back into the atmosphere. And even if they don't do that, number four, these uh, algal blooms, as they're called themselves, uh, these, these blooms of phytoplankton, Uh, are much lighter, much brighter than the surrounding ocean and themselves directly reflect sunlight back into space. Uh, In every, in every way they are, are win, win, win on, um, in terms of, of, you know, just helping stall and, and halt the effects of climate change. Uh, to the point that the the uh, and this is one of, I, I I try not to cite too too many numbers, but this is this is one that that I'm really proud of. Um, in in 2022, uh, you know, ocean fertilization is something that you know the IBRC. It's really cheap. It is it is by far the the cheapest, least labor intensive, you know, least capital intensive form of of geoengineering there is. Because really, you just need a big boat with the right kinds of of you know, iron compounds, be it volcanic ash or just uh, certain forms of, because you can actually use certain uh, uh, refined industrial byproducts if you have the right kind of iron. Like, don't just dump industrial waste into the ocean, gang. If you have industrial metal waste, this is as, as um, I'm, hi, hi guys, real quick PSA. It's me, Oz Cohen, Joint Projects Director at the Mineral Hill, Mineral Hill International Research Facility. Uh, just quick PSA, don't dump your industrial waste into the ocean. Don't do that one. But <laughs> if you have very specific kinds of industrial waste that can be purified to get the iron that we need out of it, uh, you can use that as oceanic fertilizer. But, you know, very, very specific waste. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really just putting dangerous ideas out into the world here. Um, you just load it onto a big, big, big boat and then you just dump it 
into one of these desolate parts of the ocean and you, you did it. You did ocean seeding. Congratulations. Good job. Um, it's, it's so easy. Like it, it's nothing. Um, but yeah, back when we first got our charter from the United States government in, uh, 2022 after, uh, you know, the great fires, um, that was the first thing that we did that wasn't like a test that wasn't a, you know, a, like a display of like, here's the technology that we want to use. That was the first, like, we're going to counter climate change. Here's the thing that we're doing. Give us, you know, give us more people, give us more, more money. Here we go. Um, I say we, I, I, I wasn't even born yet, so whatever. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that that's ocean, that's ocean seeding. It's it's incredibly good. It's it's fantastic and we should do it. But but one of the, I was going to say, one of the numbers that I like to throw around is uh between like the fact this is so effective and the fact that we have uh you know, brought down our global carbon uh, our anthropogenic carbon production uh pretty close to turn of the century numbers. Um ocean seeding alone accounts for the sequestering of um, at this point, uh, about almost an eighth of global anthropogenic carbon output, which is a massive, massive amount of carbon. Um, additionally, if not for, you know, really that, you know, we wouldn't be at or near carbon neutral. Like we, we would not be there. Um, and if not for the, the cooling effects of, of the, the blooms themselves, if not for the cooling effects of those clouds, there's no telling where we would be, but it would be worse. Like it, it is, it is a little like, cause the effects of it are so indirect. It is hard to model. It is hard to be sure, but it would be worse. So ocean seeding is, is really good. It's a good one. And there are other good ones and we're going to talk about those, but what we're going to do, cause this episode is running really long. We're, you know, trying to not keep these kind of podcast sessions running too long. Um, we're going to do a, a, a footnote thing. We're going to call it here. And we're going to come back in a couple days, maybe do like a two, two a week next week. And we're going to have part two of this thing. And we're going to talk about uh, direct carbon air capture and sequestration, which is one of the more modern, cool, neat things that uh, you can do to combat climate change that we, that we do here. That's uh, what we talked about at the start of the show technically. And uh, then we're going to talk about solar radiation management, which should be pretty fun. And that's that there's some there's some cool future stuff built into that one that um, we're not doing. And and if we we keep our, you know, stuff together, we get our ducks in a row, uh, we may never have to do. So that one's just going to be for funsies. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that's pretty cool. But uh, that's, that's going to be next time. Um, so I guess this is technically part one, sort of question mark. Um, either way, we're, I think we're going to call it a footnote next week or part two. Well, I don't know. Avi will figure it out at any rate. I don't want to say goodbye. So what I will say is next time around, if you're here, well, I'll be here too. Thanks for listening. It is nice to go to jail, there are nicer ways to do it, but the nice ways always fail. It isn't nice, it isn't nice, you told us once, you told us twice, 
but if that is freedom's price, we don't mind. It is nice.